Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V Radio, you can check out my little Linktree website at v or v radio.us. There you will find links to my various social media accounts, including Discord, um, Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc., um, that you can interact with me on. I set this up because a lot of my YouTube listeners in particular were giving me reports that they weren't always getting notifications of my broadcasts, and that also sometimes they were getting unsubscribed somehow. Um, there's also Telegram channels on there. Pretty much, I think I covered everything. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, you know, check out all of my archives. You can, most of them are in podcast format, but my YouTube channel has a lot of stuff on it too. Um, and thanks you for, you know, thanks again for tuning in. Um, today, my guest is a gentleman by the name, well, who basically is going to be referred to as Nexus. Um, he was a resident at the Twin Oaks Commune that you guys have heard me mention many times in the past. We're going to discuss that and also just some of the insanity that seems to have invaded the left, which is becoming now I'm finding that there's a larger and larger network developing of people who lean on the left who are also kind of of the opinion that the social justice stuff is is out of control and it's causing problems. So we'll get into that in a moment. So first, I want to welcome you, Nexus, to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So Nexus, my first question to all my guests to try to give my listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit is what was your precipice moment? Like what was the moment that made you to go from being just like an average person who maybe occasionally watched politics to being somebody who maybe became an activist or got more involved? Um, well, I'd say one precipice moment was uh, when I was in college. Um, I was heavily into Rush Limbaugh at the time and, um, and uh, I went to a liberal college and uh uh, I was becoming um, increasingly a uh, little uh, distraught and out of place uh, because I was kind of uh, m- maybe mildly traumatized from my upbringing and all, all this pressure to uh, succeed in school and get a good job and earn money, money, money. There, my um, mother put a lot of emphasis on that. And uh, it, I started thinking there's this this um, extreme emphasis on um, money and success. It's starting to feel like there's something rotten in Denmark. Something just doesn't add up. It doesn't feel right. And then I, um, uh, I was reading um, the book Utopia by Sir Thomas More, and he was critiquing how uh, the rich... Um, are uh, waste so much of their money on conspicuous consumption and and how if uh if uh, material goods were um, more equi- equitably distributed uh we'd have a much better society for everybody and i was like you know that guy's got a point uh, and suddenly all of um the uh republican type um justifications for um, having class disparities and saying, well, we, we, uh, we need the rich to have all this extra money to reinvest back into society of, um, cause if we didn't have this investment capital and th- there'd be no jobs and everyone would be broke. I was like, ah, eh, you know, a lot, a lot of it goes into yachts and champagne and stuff. And, um, so at that time I was like, you know, to, to hell with all that. I, I want to, um, I want to be idealistic. I want to reform society. And so I started, um, based on Sir Thomas More, I became a Thomas More based communist, but definitely not a Marxist. I, I want to clarify, I was never, ever a Marxist. And, and the reason I was never a Marxist is because I was familiar with the, uh, Holodomor and, and the, uh, 
Chinese Cultural Revolution, and and I, you know, I was, um, I never wanted any part of anything that was going in in that kind of authoritarian direction. Well, I would certainly agree with you about that, and I would say that unfortunately, it seems that there are elements in the left that want exactly that. Um, you know, but I, I've never read Utopia, but I, you know, I've heard it mentioned before. Um, I, ironically, I think the first time I heard it mentioned was in the movie about Cinderella that actually starred Drew Barrymore. Um, but it was brought up just that, you know, she as the character cared more about the common people than most of the nobles in question. And that was why they brought it up. But, um, in any case, I understand exactly where you're coming from. And I think that, you know, it's important, especially for those of my audience who are on the right to get that, you know, I hammer on the left plenty on this show. So sometimes I'm going to have people on that, you know, maybe you don't agree with about everything they say, but remember what I said before about that, which is just, Take some opportunity to get to know um, the other side of things, you know, and exercise your brain into why you don't agree rather than like just turning off the signal because it's, you know, in some way not 100% lined up with how you think. Um, with that disclaimer out of the way, um, how did you come to discover Twin Oaks? So, um it was in a class I was taking in college, and that was where I read the Sir Thomas More book. And uh, the name of that class was Utopia, Ideal and Reality. And uh, we read a mixture of utopian novels and also books about real-life uh, communal experiments. And um, the so as a pair, we read both... Walden 2 by B.F. Skinner and the uh, book that was inspired by B.F. Skinner called A Walden 2 Experiment by Kathleen Kincaid. And uh, that described the first five years of Twin Oaks uh, spanning from when it started in 1967 up till 1972. And um, you know, reading that pair of books, I was like, oh, not only am I a Sir Thomas More based communist, I'm a B.F. Skinner based communist. And um, but still not a Marxist. And uh, so, and then reading the, the real life description of Twin Oaks, I was like, my God, this, this place really existed. And, and uh, my teacher says, Oh, it doesn't just uh, exist in the past. It's still existing right now. It's like, you gotta be kidding. And so I, I wrote them a letter and sure enough, they were still there and I applied for membership and, and got myself in and uh, the rest is history. What was your first impression arriving there? Having, you know, never been part of an intentional community like that. Well, my first impression was I had read so much about it and, and looked at the photos in their brochure. I, I instantly recognized everything. I could, I knew some of the people already and I could, I could name the different buildings because I, I was just already, I was such a, uh, a super fan at that point. Right. No, and that sounds, um, so I guess kind of give us some examples of like how your first few months were there you know, and how your adjustment was and was any of it like anything, say, surprising, maybe you didn't expect? Um, the only thing I really didn't expect was the transition from being a visitor in their three-week visitor program till when I came back and and started started my actual membership. Uh, they they did have a very well-structured visitor program and the, the visitors get, get lots of attention and lots of um, education about the different aspects of the community. Uh, but when I'm a member, suddenly, you know, I, I didn't have any friends and, and I was kind of alone and being ignored. And um, so it, it took me a while to form those new connections without the help of that visitor program. 
That's interesting. So I guess what you're getting at, though, is, is that there's kind of a, an, an energy net there that it basically you, you kind of have to take some opportunity to get to know the people there. It's not like you're yeah, kind like, of like anywhere else. Everyone. Right, right, exactly. Um, you know, so I, and I guess it, let's talk a moment just about how the uh, what was it labor credits or basically the system that, you know, determines like how your contribution works. Um. So uh, for the clarification of the uh, people listening, I was there from the years, uh, I'm, I'm 40, 48 years old. I was there starting in 1993, and then I left in the year 2000. So mo- most of what I know is from that span of seven years in the 1990s. Right. And right. Uh, the last time I physically visited there was in 2017. And for the most part, most of it was still the same, although little things have changed since then. Uh, so what, what was your question again? Oh, my question was just, could you kind of describe like, you know, how the whole system of how they determine, okay, you have to contribute this much. I mean, cause like basically one of the, the arguments always given that this can never work is always to say that, you know, without monetary incentive, then people will just kind of lay around all the time, you know? And I think that it also plays to one of my concerns is that, you know, because I have friends who are socialists, the successful socialists that I know kind of acknowledge that there's work involved. I think that some kids like really who don't really understand what it is that's entailed in being part of something like that. They kind of think that they're just going to sit around and collect checks and then go do whatever they want. Um, but no, <laughs> there's real work that needs to be done. Um, yeah, you know, quite a lot and, of work. Yeah. Right. And so I guess, and how does that get distributed? That's always the question that they have that, you know, that they feel that can't be done. Right. So when I was there, the labor quota was everyone had to work the same amount of hours per week, which at that that time was set at 46 and a half hours a week. I think since then they've lowered it down to 42, which is a little more manageable. Um, And the, the basic notion is that anybody's work at any job is equivalent to anybody else's work at any job. And that includes both like jobs you would consider desirable, like making flower arrangements uh, and just jobs that you would consider undesirable, like working in the sewage treatment plant Uh, each an an hour is worth an hour. And, and, and they're all equal in that respect. And everyone has the same number of hours in the day. And so as long as everyone is working their labor quota, it's uh, it's Smurf village. How do you guys determine in the end then how does, say, the sewage cleanup as opposed to, you know, I don't know, basket weaving? <laughs> and just to be clear, I'm only giving these questions because I know these are the ones that are people are asking or are listening. Um, well, uh, B.F. Skinner in his book Walden 2, he had this idea that that there would be sort of a market for labor credits and that it would be a variable, variable weighted Thing where the um, the less desirable a job was, the uh, the more the labor credit was worth, and thus to make your quota, you had to work fewer hours, and so people would choose the, the undesirable work in order to work fewer hours. That was B.F. Skinner's idea. Twin Oaks tried that, and and first of all, that there was a lot of overhead in calculating all that math. And after a while, they just decided it wasn't necessary because if you get a large enough group, you've got people with different kinds of interests. You've got people who actually want to work in the sewage treatment plant because it's like being a scientist. You get your little beakers out and you do your little chemical tests to make sure the chemical balance is all right. And um, 
And, you know, some people find that actually more intellectually stimulating than making flower arrangements. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, I guess, uh, those are always the, you know, I guess Jack Fresco's answer to that problem would be if there's things like literally shoveling crap, then maybe we should automate that. And that that's kind of the direction things are headed anyway. Um, you know, but, you know, with all that said, you know, as far as like, you know, the social situation as it, you know, was there, I know that you said that um, the, the woke stuff hadn't really exploded out of proportion while you were there, but that you feel that that's pretty much the direction that it's headed now. Oh, extremely much. Yeah. And I, I guess, so let's just go over this, you know, first of all, just like to kind of say in general, not just with Twin Oaks, but you being a left-leaning person who also feels that this is kind of out of control. Um, what what are your experiences with it? And just like, you know, what is your take on it without me saying anything to lead the question? Um, because I also encounter all kinds of people on the left who are not aware of the fact that people like you and I exist and that we can actually believe in leftist concepts and then not also agree with all of the rest of the inquisition that we have going on as far as, you know, race, gender, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, just kind of give like your take on it from your, your perspective. It took me a long time to wrap my head around it. At first I was like, um, you know, it, it gets its nose in the door by pitching itself as, well, we're the compassionate answer. If you're a compassionate person, you'd be interested in this. And if for some reason you're resistant to it, like there's something suspicious about you. Like, why would you be resistant to compassion and caring about people? Are you, are you against caring about people? And so uh, that's, that's how it hooks you in. And so initially um, the, um, uh, you know, the people start talking about various disparities, whether it's in class, you know, back in the 1990s, we still talked about class disparities, uh, and as well as uh, race and gender and something. And, and, you know, of course, the, the, um, the part of you that cares about um, compassion, that cares about fairness, and, you know, wants, um, wants justice and balance and things to make sense was like, oh, yeah, of course, I'd be um, uh, yeah, angry at, at anything that's an artificial barrier that's keeping somebody out just on based on the color of their skin or their gender or uh, what have you. Like, you know, there shouldn't be these... Um, you know, artificial um, you know, boundaries saying uh, you can go here, but you can't go there based on, on t- totally arbitrary characteristics of our birth that no one can do anything about. So, you know, I got strung along for a long time based on that. And I think I, I got into the mentality of quotaism, I would call it, which is you enter a new group, whatever group that is, whether it's just a pe- bunch of people sitting around for lunch or a, a new club you join and and it's it's a habit that not just me but many other people i've seen get into where you you scan the crowd and you start counting heads of like how many women are there how many men are there uh, you know what are the colors of the people's skin is are does this um uh demographic breakdown match the demographics of the united states in general or is or is it skewed in some direction i i remember i went to a uh, a new organization that was interested in space colonization. And, you know, I took a look around and, and I, I, I did some math and I was like, wow, this, this group is only 9% female. There's something drastically wrong with this group. Um, 
Whereas looking back today, I was just like, you know, these people are just talking about rockets and stuff, which, you know, maybe a limited number of women are interested in and the ones who are interested in it, great for them. But, you know, why would I expect this, um, this uh, ratio to be exactly 50, 50? There's no reason I would need to presume that. But I spent years presuming things like that and getting into that mentality of, oh, if we only had the precise exact demographic breakdown, then 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 we've reached utopia. But until then, uh, we're just not doing good enough. Right. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons why, um, like, so for example, for me, from the, the slash zeitgeist movement slash Venus project perspective, Jacques Fresco was really big on science being the, if there was anything that was authority, it was what we can prove via actually testing hypothesis and running experiments, you know, and then coming, arriving at conclusions, you know, and then that also includes that if something is wrong, then you figure that out via the scientific method and then you adjust accordingly rather than having subjective opinions and you know, so for me, that was my basis at that. And I got really deep into it to the point where I was even a spokesman for the Venus Project at one point. And when the woke stuff showed up, all of a sudden I have these people kind of emphasizing a bit more on feelings than they are on facts. And in some cases, even just isolating the scientific method or rational thinking itself as the enemy. Like this is whiteness. This is an aspect of white culture as if white people own science. And for me, you know, having been a kid who actually one of the people that I read about that really inspired me was, um, you know, George Washington Carver, famous inventor, black man, invented a bunch of stuff with peanuts. So the entire notion of that was just ridiculous to me. But there were people that were arguing with me to say that Fresco or perhaps Peter Joseph, the maker of the Zeitgeist film, would agree with them that we need to make everything about race and everything about gender and everything about oppressed groups. And it was interesting to me because that is literally the polar opposite of what Fresco had said. He literally says, you know, there are no black people problems. There are no white, you know, women problems, Jewish problems. There are people problems, you know. And when I talked to him early on, because when I first went to meet him in Florida, uh, he I still considered myself a racial and gender activist at that time. And he was I asked him why he opposed doing those sorts of things. And he said, it's not that I oppose the idea of equality for people on the basis of race or gender. It's that, you know, I've been at this for a long time. I mean, the guy died at like 102 years old, you know, and Mm -hmm. pretty much what I have seen is that if you you go into that sort of thing with the best of intentions, but before long, you're kind of you're pushing, you know, past the issue of equality and into getting into a mentality where maybe even you might want privileges for your group. You basically become exactly what it is that you set out to oppose and sure and and i after a while i started to notice i was i was it's a subtle dehumanization both of me and of other people of you when you're only looking at the demographics you're not seeing the person as an individual for their um soul or whatever um and and it's it's creepy. I, like I was in a rock band, and I was thinking, oh, you know, the problem, you know, this band is great, but the problem is everyone in the band is a white male. If we could only get a black lesbian in our band, then we'd have the perfect band. And and I was I told the story to a couple people, and one time I told it to a black lesbian, and and I suddenly saw my reflection in in uh, I was like, ooh, you know, that's creepy. Why that whole line of thought is, is creepy and it's depersonal and it's, I, I, 
Yeah. Right. Bleh. Definitely bleh. I'm going to have to write that down and figure out how we spell that word. But no, <laughs> I agree with you completely. But it's, it also, it, for me, it sets up warning signs for things like, you know, when we were at Occupy, we had the stack, which was to determine who got to talk um, and in what order. And it was generally by the chrono- chronological order at which the person would step up, you know, and in some places they implemented the progressive stack where the more intersectional um, oppressed classes you could tack on to yourself would get you a boost as far as to where you were in the stack. Um, you know, and this was actually a big like point of contention in a lot of the different Occupy groups. And I noticed that at Occupy Detroit, as opposed to Occupy Flint, and I've said this many times in the broadcast, so I won't go on the normal, long, lengthy version of this, but basically Occupy Detroit became woke and Occupy Flint did not. Occupy Detroit turned into small groups of bickering people doing exactly as Fresco said they would, which is, well, this is about black issues. This is about trans issues. This is about women's issues, you know, and as a result, not only does it hinder productivity, you end up in scenarios where the validity of your argument is based upon these things, not whether or not what you said is accurate, whether or not the person you're debating with is more oppressed than you, which is what the whole check your privilege you know, get out of having to actually have an argument card comes from. And beyond just the issue of that's infuriating, if you're the person that that's happening to, it's dangerous because it means that, you know, completely irrational, badly thought out ideas get to become mainstream because of the people that are presenting them having certain skin color or gender or whatever, which is supposed to be the opposite of what we're doing here, which is why, People who oppose what they're doing, you know, and unfortunately as well, the conservatives will bring up, you know, Martin Luther King quotes about not by the color of my skin, but by the content of my character. And that was supposed to be what what everybody was on board for. And they kind of try to say that that's really what they're trying to do, but that it doesn't really happen that way in practice, you know, and that's the reason why, especially if you happen by just the, you know, the, the situation of your birth happened to be a straight white cis male then you know your position in the group is immediately it's like it's an inverted hierarchy it didn't eliminate hierarchy it inverted the hierarchy um and that's i get the notion of trying to make sure everybody gets speaking time that's definitely important and everybody should get you know equal speaking time and you know when you're in a consensus model decision making situation right but that's quantifiable you you can take out a stopwatch you know it's you know, but when it becomes down to the issue of we're going to value certain people's voices over others, then you're just inverting the problem you were seeking out to destroy. Yeah, and and I think that's that's the whole um, crux of the issue. It's it's a it's a politics based on resentment, and the whole idea is to get revenge. Right. That was that was a, do you want equality or do you want revenge? And you know they usually don't want to answer that question, but. It would be different if you were talking about revenge on certain people, but they want revenge on people who don't, or in many cases, are not even alive anymore. And they want to collectively blame, you know, entire swaths of people for things that perhaps some people within that group did, which is how you get into the the white people talk, or they invent what amounts to essentially a new racial slur, which is white people, you know, and then you can associate everybody with that. And then you're all held accountable for it. And the fact that, 
actual racists, you know, do things like bring up FBI's crime statistics as justification for their racist beliefs, you know, it doesn't occur to them that they're basically playing the same game. All black people are on account for robberies and murders and, you know, because of the percentages, you know, but they, they don't ever kind of grasp that what they're doing is the same thing. And more to the point, they're trying to rewrite the words to exonerate themselves from possibly being racist, from possibly being, you know, um, bigoted in any way. Um, yeah, so or, many word games. Uh, right. they, they just they twist definitions until and twist and pull on them like saltwater taffy until they mean the 180 degree opposite of what they used to mean. Well, right. And that's the funny thing that I bring up to leftists as well is that George Orwell was a socialist who fought in the Spanish Civil War, which was probably one of the best examples of a time period where there was a successful anarcho-syndicalist slash communist thing going on, you know, and he wrote 1984 and he wrote Animal Farm as cautionary tales. Like mm-hmm. as in this can happen to you, even if you're a socialist, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is that it got picked up by the conservative capitalist side as evidence that communism doesn't work. When in reality, what it was meant to be was, by the way, if you're going to try this, this can happen. Like it's a warning, um, you know, and one of the points in one of his books, he makes the statement that if you find yourself in a situation where those in charge are trying to eliminate the concept of objective truth, then you know that there's an authoritarian movement, you know, that's trying to gain control. And that's what the word games are about. You know, that's like 1984 is a perfect example of that. We're just going to sit there and, you know, make you discuss more and more insane things that you know are not true until we just get you to the point that you're just going to believe whatever we say and just not question it anymore. You know, and beyond just any issue of like whether or not that's right or wrong for the left or the right, um, no society that's supposed to be about equality can actually function in that situation. It just seems like they're using our need for equality against us to more or less just destroy our ability to critically think. And, you know, well, even just label it bad, you know, as I've brought up on previous broadcasts that critical analytical thinking emphasis in the scientific method or whiteness um, as, a, you know, as defined by the, uh, what was it? The Smithsonian African-American Museum of History, you know, had a flyer that did that. You know, I guess- Your tax dollars at work. Well, right. But as this plays into, you know, your experiences with just the people in Twin Oaks, because- Essentially, what is going on now is also just this kind of um, zealotry and, uh, you know, that just it mirrors the Inquisition in that if you blasphemy in any way, we're going to bring you down. And if you don't agree with any small aspect of our dogma, then it doesn't just mean that, okay, maybe you're mostly leftist. It means, no, you're a fascist, white supremacist. Sex, like you're, you're the absolute polar opposite of what you are because of this. Like there's no room for nuance. There's no room for, well, maybe I don't agree with this part, but I do agree with that part. You know, and, and I guess, so how did this manifest within the community at Twin Oaks, for, at least from, you know, your perspective from watching it in the, you know, in the place that you're in? Well, thankfully it didn't happen while I was living there. It was, um, you know, pretty much a live and let live attitude during, during the nineties. Um, I went back and, um, in 2017 and visited a few times to, um, uh, perform with the, uh, rock band there. And 
the um, had a wonderful time. We great, great people in, in that band um, and had a, had a great experience. However, uh, you know, I'd, I'd stay for dinner after the rehearsal and, um, you know, I'd hear, you know, just be uh, shoveling food into my mouth, listening to the conversations around me. And, and I keep hearing the word white, 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 white. And um, it's apparently this is how people socially bond these days is, is uh, making dis- disparaging comments about white people in general. And it's uh, almost always white people who are making these disparaging comments about white people. And so um, that's like, th- this is not, I'm not used to this. This is a new experience of this constant disparagement of the white. Um, that that wasn't um, that wasn't the way it used to be back in the days of uh, when you know when it was supposed to be um, the united colors of Benetton and we're all going to get along and be equals. Right, and that's kind of the experience that I had dealing with the way Occupy Detroit transformed. As we went from being this totally unified, seamless group of people who came from a variety of backgrounds all working together towards the same goals to becoming this fractured group of, you know, different, you know, people with their own, you know, issues. And it's just not healthy for any group that you're part of. And I imagine if everybody buys into it, I guess it could be to some extent, you know, sustainable, but um, it, it also though, like what kind of society evolves out of that? And when you describe it like that, it kind of reminds me, it's like, you know, the process, for example, of hating given races takes time. You know, if it was really about equality, then we would only be focused on, you know, certain aspects of it. Like, as in, okay, well, you know, let's make sure that everybody got to talk, everybody got to do what they want, needed to do, express what they needed to express. If that was the emphasis, that would work for everybody, no matter what color they were, no, you know, no matter what gender they were, et cetera. You know, but instead, there's this emphasis on tearing down one side and constantly attacking it. And, you know, I think Fresco's perspective instead was that, you know, um, if you have a bunch of floating objects and you fill the water level, they all come up, you know, like they all raise to the new level, you know. Um, But it seems to me like I remember there was this guy who had a channel that actually got taken down by YouTube, but he used to attack this issue all the time. And he actually went on a tour of the Holocaust Museum and talked to them about the slow demonization process of Jews in Mm -hmm. how the Nazis just over time managed to turn the German society against them, you know, and that you just, the, the propaganda of just constantly being berated with that all the time. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing is that I'm going into these situations and I don't suddenly feel equality is going on. You know, that's why I said it's like an inverse hierarchy. We're not, you know, raising voices to the equal level. We're, we're creating a new situation where, We've demonized white people. And, you know, so therefore, you know, where does that inevitably lead them to be? You know, if we're well, only allowed. Of course, people would say, well, it could never happen here, especially since whites are the majority. Like, you know, you know, uh, you know, this, you know, that someone would probably claim that reflects badly on, on you for, for not recognizing uh, your privilege or something like that. However, to that, I would counter, sure, whites are the majority. However, if you, if you, um, uh, divide it into the the cis straight white male Christian conservative. If you narrow it down that far, that's a minority. Well, yeah, and and a, and a minority that's getting smaller and smaller all the time. And that's the funny thing is, I was planning on doing a video about this, and I didn't do it. But they, people were talking about what the census revealed, 
And one of the things that's frustrating to me is that, you know, we're now being told that, you know, you're a class reductionist or you're an idiot if you just reduce this all down to class. I actually just got into a debate with somebody today about this because the people that are convinced that the whole problem is caused by systemic racism, I usually challenge them to this. I say, fine, um, if that's what it is, give me some solid examples of current situations that are systemically racist that are not systemically classist. Because these things go on in countries where there are only or mostly white people, these meaning wealth disparities, poverty, et cetera. These things go on in countries where there are no white people to blame it on. You know, these things go on and have gone on, you know, throughout the centuries. There always seems to be this vast wealth gap. And information that, you know, I recently reviewed was that there's this interesting trend that happened that around the time that Occupy Wall Street was, you know, crumbling into the dirt, you know, there was this effort made in the media to change the topics instead to be all of these various woke issues instead. And mm-hmm. you know, people who are tuning into this now, I'll, I'll put the link to the video in, in my description of my podcast if you're just tuning in on the podcast. But the point is, is there's real quantifiable data that shows that the media started pushing, um, you know, trans issues, uh, you know, gender issues, racial issues, uh, white privilege. Like there was all these terms that were getting all these, these newspaper articles and then Occupy was vanishing and any talk about the banks was vanishing, you know, and then one major point that they bring up, like there was a statement made by Hillary Clinton during one of her campaign moments where she said, well, Bernie Sanders seems to be really big on breaking up the big banks. If we broke up the big banks tomorrow, what would that do to fight racism? What would that do to help the LGBTQ community? Like she just went down the litany of, of woke issues. So that's why breaking down the big ranks is not important is because what is that going to do to fight racism, sexism, uh, trans rights? You know, like it, it was it was exactly her just turning the whole subject into this woke stuff and not the class stuff, you know. And instead, at that point, any kind of like momentum that we had has been broken down, you know, and the same guy who put together those graphics pointed out that. For some reason, Black Lives Matter felt the need to show up to disrupt Bernie Sanders at one of his rallies, uh-huh. yet, yet they didn't show up to anybody else's rallies. You know, mm. like, um, and so why is that? You know, what was the point of that? You know, they got up and took the microphone from him and threatened him and all kinds of stuff. You know, he wasn't your freaking enemy, you know, or is he? Uh, it, it sort of looked like a ritual humiliation. Right. And ritual humiliation is what I would describe goes on in a lot of these situations. You know, that's, I mean, one of the ways that it manifested, I actually have video of this, um, part of this on my uh, old YouTube channel was at um, an inter-Occupy gathering. There was this group of people who showed up, mostly college kids, and they called themselves the bicycle superheroes. Um, And basically they were just a group of kids who literally would ride through communities and look for people who needed help, you know, loosely dressed dressed as superheroes. I know know those people. They're, they're awesome. You know, like they were such nice people. And then they showed up at this gathering and God said, well, why are you using superheroes as your image? Because superheroes are an image of white supremacy. And I, at this point I tuned in because I'm a comic book author. And I was like, well, hold on a second here. You know, and then I just got to listen to them just point blank lie. Like one of them said, well, Storm was just a bit character in the X-Men you know, and they married her off to Black Panther and sent her back to Africa. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, I read the X-Men since the 
late seventies to all the way through the nineties. And I'm like, um, no storm. Wasn't just a member. She was the leader of the X-Men for well <laughs> over 15 years. And she was given a whole lot of white males orders and nobody cared. Like there was no complaint. There was no pushback on that. Everybody kind of, at least in my generation of X-Men fans acknowledges that she was by far the better leader, you know, of the X-Men that they've ever had, you know, and she was presented as black women are beautiful and wise and strong. You know, it was like, so, but they needed a new narrative. They needed a narrative that apparently, you know, superheroes are racist and white supremacist and upholding white supremacist ideals. And so they're trying yeah, to you tear should down. Ignore, ignore the evidence of your own eyes and only listen to our narrative. Right, exactly. And you said you knew the bicycle superheroes, so you know the kind of kids I'm talking about. They were such nice, kind-hearted people. You know, and I interviewed several of them. I'll share the, the videos with them. Maybe you'll recognize some of them. But I just couldn't see any point in tearing down this group of people. And, of course, I think at the end of the day, one of the things that really bothered them was that by happenstance, that particular group of bicycle superheroes was, mo- was mostly white kids. So, of course, anything that they were doing needed to be torn down, even if it was completely altruistic and them just trying to help. You know, wow. and, and that's and to me, I that was one of the reasons why I just kind of stopped going to Occupy gatherings. I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. This is so stupid. It's not just that it's dishonest, although that's a major part of it. It just it's mean spirited and it doesn't and it's not helping. You know, it's like. You know, now, thankfully, the bicycle superheroes just took it in stride and went about their business. But they were so cheerful all the time. And I I don't think anything can happen to really demoralize them. But the notion that that's what they had to do and that the only role that it seems that white people have in these situations is either to completely be um, a parrot and echo anything the black people in the situation are saying, you know, or... Um, the other role they can have is to be totally submissive and quiet and, and do nothing, you know, and I can't, I'm not saying that there aren't situations where white people should be shut up and listen, but I am saying, however, that just by virtue of being a certain color or gender or sexual orientation or whatever does not automatically make you right. Even in topics about race. Mm -hmm. And if that's the metric we're going to use is that we're just going to say, well, unless you have this, well, (laughs) That's another one. If you are a certain skin color, you're supposed to be subservient on these issues to persons of other skin color, unless it's these issues, like these people. So like they reserve the right to disqualify people from blackness, for example, whenever they want. So that kind of, to me, you know, the fact that it's like, listen to all lived experiences of people of color, unless they're Candace Owens, you know, (laughs) uh, unless they're, you know, uh, there's like a bunch of them, Thomas Sowell, you know, unless they're these people, then you can't listen to them. But otherwise, you must listen to them. That's when it kind of reveals, though, that it's really not about the gender or the race. It's really about you following the narrative without question. You have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I think um, that's the that's the working definition of their word ally. It doesn't really mean ally. Like, you, you know, you think of the you know allies in the World War Two of the United States and uh, the Soviet Union. You know, they didn't have to be on the same page about anything except fighting the Axis. However, you know, with the with the uh, social justice people, the way they use ally, you can tell from the context it means subservient. Right. Well, yeah, actually, there's a guy, um, 
I think his name is Stitch. He does an excellent video specifically on what ally really means. And he points out that it's, you know, um, working together, but separate, like that there's an issue to make sure that you understand that you're separate. Like he pointed out that during world war two, you know, the French and the English were allies, but they weren't the same thing, you know? And then he points out that it seems like that that's really what it is. It's just complete subservience. And if, if you don't do these things, then you're not an ally, you know? And, the other thing that I noticed, because I was reading today a, a conversation on Twitter about critical race theory and how um, studying critical race theory in schools is leading to kids using it to bully each other. And, you know, and somebody pointed out, well, you know, that's fairly common among bullying is that it's public shaming, you know, and the guy said, well, what do you mean? That's the most common form of bullying. And she's like, well, yeah, if you happen to be in the group that has more social credit, then, yeah, you know public shaming is the preferred version of bullying. And that kind of like, you know, flicked on a light bulb in my head to go, yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, it just becomes a new way to other people, which is another funny thing is they have their concept of othering. And I, I did a whole video about that. And they, and when they're talking about othering, they don't usually try to preclude and say that any one race can't do it. So that's why I used it as a tool is explaining what's wrong with their definitions of racism is that, you guys are othering white people, like by the exact definition of what the term othering is, you know, you guys are assigning traits to all white people, assigning, you know, responsibility for events to all white people. You're, you know, and, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I, um, aside from just the issues of it's not fair to white people, it's also an issue that if people who fit enough you know, diversity demographics are held at a higher rate of esteem and, and that their, their point of view is automatically more correct, even if it's not, that also would just poison a group. Like if you're trying to have an intentional community, that's probably the last thing I'd want to see. And I guess, you know, didn't you say, okay, so going back to the, how this applies to Twin Oaks, you know, um, Twin Oaks just by happenstance was a majority white community, right? Yeah. Right. And um, did, did you say something along the lines that they had determined that they like they made a, some kind of public statement that they were a white supremacist community? Yeah, this happened in uh, the year 2020. I from time to time check in on their website to see if anything new happened. And and I see this announcement on their homepage and on the homepage, it says um, I'm just paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but something like, um, you know, at Twin Oaks, we are uh, confessing before the world that we are a white supremacist community. This is what Twin Oaks says. And uh, that, um, and that, uh, and that they always have been a white supremacist community going back to their founding and that they're pledging to work on it. And they just, uh, they feel very bad about it. And um, they just want everyone to know, and uh, they're going to work really hard. Uh, and I, th- I thought um, this is beyond bizarre, but I, I understand the lingo. I've been around the block. I understand what they're trying to say is that we're against racism. However, th- they're working on this definition of racism as racism is defined as a racist always denies being a racist. And so anyone who denies being racist is therefore a racist. And so the only way to publicly declare yourself not to be a racist is you have to tell the whole world that you are a racist. And that's the only way to get your street cred. However, in the process, they've 
publicly declared that they're a white supremacist community. And I don't see how you ever walk back from that. <laughs> well, right. You know, I was like, does that set off alarms at the Southern Poverty Law Center? You know, yeah, sure. um, well, yeah. And it just, but I, and I get it too, is that they're doing it to more or less self-flagellate and, you know, prostrate themselves, you know, in their act of trying to repent or whatever, you know. Yeah, but- and, and when we say they, I, I'm, you know, I can only guess, but I'm, I'm guessing that a sizable portion of the community was against this, but probably was, you know, too scared to speak up about it. So I, I really doubt that they have complete unanimous agreement on this. Well, right. And, you know, and the, the issue about not speaking up is, is a big part of it. And that's one of the reasons I've been doing these shows. And I've been discovering more and more people on the left who are in that same category. And that's why, I mean, you commented on my use of the Ash conformity experiment as an example, you know, um, and it really just comes down to you need somebody else who's going to come out and say it too. And then enough people have to be willing to do it. And then they, but they have situations involved. Like that's why I said, what's different about this than say the Ash conformity experiment is that now if you don't agree with their incorrect answer as to which line matches the length of another line, then we're going to call you racist and sexist and evil and bad. And, you know, we're going to try to cancel you and get your job, you know, get you fired from your job. And we're going to, you know, it's like, you know, and so now you put that on top of just the social pressures that naturally happen when a group of people are saying something incorrect and you know that, you know, but you just kind of feel compelled to go along with it. And, you know, that again, you know, one of the things that I would say that Fresco talks about all the time, you know, was that if his system was going to work, you had to have rational conversations and you had to be able to say whatever needed to be said in the moment to arrive at the correct conclusions. And the only situations, and that's why I again keep coming back to comparing it to religion, you know, and witch hunts, was that there were people in Salem who were fully aware that many of the people who were getting executed were innocent, but they couldn't say anything because to do so put them under immediate suspicion, you know, and that's why, it, you know, it's, I, I usually call it like a sticky accusation. You know, they, they put it on you and you keep trying to sling it off your hand. And the more you swing your hand around to try to get it off of you, the stickier it gets, because the more you fight them on it, you know, then the more obviously guilty you are. You know, that's yeah, how they, they call that it. Kafka trapping. Right. You know, and if you disagree, then it's your white fragility, you know, um, it, it, no matter what they said, it's funny is that they're trying to bring um, critical race theory kind of stuff to my school system right now. And they primered it by trying to have a, a book discussion of white fragility with the entire school board and then with the entire school faculty. Now, fortunately enough, some of the citizens have stepped up and gone, whoa, hold on a second here <laughs> and have managed to get it, you know, but to put the brakes on it. But that's kind of the reason I said it seems like white fragility seems to be the, you know, we're going to use this first because that way, if you disagree with anything we say, we can just say, hey, man, you know, you read that white fragility book. Are you sure this isn't your white fragility talking and that's not why you're not agreeing with this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, how it plays out is like a zombie apocalypse where they they suck your brains out and, and the brains aren't there anymore and, and all rational thought to sh- completely shuts down. I'm sure if one of them listened to, to you speaking on this show, they'd say, oh, this is, this is obviously a, a far right person uh, talking on this show. Well, no, absolutely. I get called that all the time, you know, and, and just the assumption in general is that way. And it's not, and I think it's another, it's also kind of important to point this out 
because I do end up hammering on the left quite a bit, is that it's not that I think that the right is better in this regard. I will say that lately it's been better in one way. And that is that if I discuss things with people I know on the right and we don't agree, the likelihood that we can still have a constructive conversation is considerably higher than it is if I'm deviating from anything when it comes to the deep left. You know, um, those kinds of people can't um, tolerate that kind of thing at all. In fact, ironically, Jacques Fresco, when he was younger, you know, uh, like back then they were doing, that's literally where the term soapboxing comes from, is that political pundit types would get up on soapboxes and try to get people interested in their ideas. You know, um, and he heard about communism and he was like, well, this is interesting. Let me check this out. And then the guy said, well, I can't help you. You have to join the Young Communist League. And then he went to the Young Communist League and he went and joined one of their meetings and he started listening to them talk and he started asking very tough questions like, you know, well, how do you deal with the the corruption and, you know, the possibility of this and that? And they literally kicked him out of the meeting and they said, you're, you know, you're a deviationist. You're, you're not conforming to Marxism. You have to leave, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, if your ideology is so strong and if you've really thought this through, then why do you rely on censorship? to maintain your confidence in it. And that reminds me again of religion. You know, like uh, during the satanic panic, it was about making sure that our kids were never exposed to evil Dungeons and Dragons books because we don't want them to deviate from going to church every Sunday. You know, so have you had any kind of experiences with that? With Dungeons and Dragons? Well, no, (laughs) just like the kind of religious, like, you know, no, we, we don't accept any ideas but our own notions among the left. Oh sure, uh, I had um, I was living in another community in in the 2010s, and uh, it was uh, around the year 2013 that um, I think uh, I'm thinking of four different individuals came through, and and they um, they had nothing in common with each other except they were all sucked into the the woke ideology, and and. Uh, I just noticed what they all had in common was just being really dogmatic and really hostile and feeling entitled to control everything and change everything and, and have, have us stop doing the activities we're used to doing and channel all of our energy into woke ideology. Uh, you know, everything, everything must now serve the theory and, um, and that's that's when I realized, wow, these these people are nuts, and it's not so much the it's not it's not these individuals who were crazy. It's that they started out somewhat normal, and they were made crazy by this crazy ideology. And I've got to devote my life to stopping it. Right, and that's and and they kind of get the impression that this is the most pressing matter, more important than anything else could possibly be. You know, and I think that um, this is what leads us to a road where it keeps us from being um, positive when it comes to actually making headway in other aspects of things, Um, particularly now that, for example, and I've said this many times, any uh, um, work that Bernie Sanders did to bring attention to left-leaning concepts like Medicare for all, you know, free college, et cetera, you know, hey, don't look at Venezuela, look at Denmark, you know, all of that stuff is now saddled 
with the activities of groups like Antifa, with the groups that, you know, the, the members of BLM who engage, you know, in violent action, you know, like it's saddled with that stuff, but it's also saddled now with, you know, the wokeisms and the, you know, trying to get into your school system to brainwash your kids, you know, that kind of stuff is now throwing all of the good work that he had done, you know, in, into the trash. And it seems like as, you know, if, if you don't go along with them, then they will act to destroy you. And that includes even a guy like Bernie Sanders, which is why he had to just sit there and let Black Lives Matter take over his rally. It was because it was either that or there would have been very real repercussions for it. You know, um, and he can't even like, I remember once when he was debating Hillary, you know, some of the feminists tried to jump in and say, he was raising his voice to Hillary Clinton, you know, as if that was what was important was that he was being a patriarch or something, not the content of what they're discussing. Like we need to have a conversation about whether or not Bernie Sanders was talking over Hillary Clinton, not about Hillary Clinton's history of being a warmonger, um, essentially Republican light her entire career. You know, that's the stuff that I would say made it the most dangerous to me was when, you know, in 2016, Bernie won Michigan, but he lost Flint and Detroit. And being as how I was plugged into the leftist movements in those areas, I looked into it and I found out that there were just a bunch of people who said they couldn't bring themselves to vote for a white male. So they vote for Hillary Clinton, you know, and I won't go on the long rant I normally do about this because I've done it many times, but it suffice it to say, if I had to compare Bernie Sanders' record on civil rights issues to Hillary Clinton's, I would take Bernie Sanders any day. You know, did you encounter any or experience any kind of stuff like this where people just get disqualified, even though they're the better candidate, just solely based on this social justice cult? Um, uh, I can't think of a, an example that pops to mind. I'm sure it happens all the time. though. <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, go ahead. It sounded like you were going to say something. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you want to know how I um, managed not to get sucked in and have my brains eaten by these zombies? <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Well, uh, I my superhero origin story is I um, I went to the Amazon jungle and spent three months in the Amazon uh, drinking ayahuasca. And, uh, you know, this is a powerful hallucinogenic drug. And... Uh, what it tends to do is uh, is make people vomit a lot, and and um, and it's not just a a, a physical process, uh, but um, lots of people have remarked that they they feel that they're they're letting go of trapped emotions as they as they vomit, and the um, and this definitely happened to me, which is the reason I went down there, um, and. Uh, so I felt like, uh, along with other things, one of the main things I was able to let go of was my capacity for shame and guilt. I just, I, I puked and puked and puked and suddenly no more shame and guilt. Um, and so th this became my superpower. I could no longer be guilt tripped. And so I come back to America and I, I meet these uh, these uh, zealot ideologues, and they're trying to guilt trip me. I'm just like, I just laugh it off. I brush it off my shoulder. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. And so I, I do sympathize with the people um, who haven't gone through some kind of similar process and are still susceptible to guilt. And I, I recognize it as um, sort of an, an analogy to a, uh, 
a computer system can get infected with a virus by having a vulnerability, by having a doorway into the computer system. And for the human system, uh, guilt is is a way for hackers to get in and gain control of their, their system. And uh, I think people are going to have to learn one way or another how to build a really strong firewall against guilt trips from now on. Well, and especially considering there seems to be so much emphasis on creating guilt, you know, in their conditioning programs. And that's what I call them because it's not just education. It, it's pretty clear that it's, it's a form of brainwashing. You know, you need to be guilty. You know, it's like, for example, when they discuss whether or not critical race theory is just expanded black history, they bring up things like, say, the Tulsa race massacre. Why weren't we taught about this? You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I emerged from my education in the 80s and 90s, hating racism, hating slavery, um, you know, aware of the fact that, you know, of Jim, of Jim Crow, aware of the fact that they had to fight for the vote, aware of the civil rights struggle of the 60s, you know, and supportive of it. Also aware of a lot of great, powerful black figures like George Washington Carver or Charles Drew or, you know, that I wasn't aware of before my education. You know, um, why do we need another massacre? thrown into that. Not that I'm saying don't, but why is that so important? Why is that like this critical issue that you, that they feel they need to to die on? And then even to go so far as, you know, when it comes to the 1619 project, they began it with a lie. Like there's plenty of valid things to say about the founding of this country and its relationship with slavery. They didn't have to make anything up, but they felt the need to say that the Revolutionary War itself was fought to preserve slavery, which is utterly inaccurate. And then the way that our you know woke like world works, they then went on to award the person who made that inaccurate statement with the Pulitzer Prize, like our highest journalistic prizes, you know, you know awards and recognition, you know, and the fact that you you know you could tell a lie like that, and I guess they've since adjusted it or whatever, but. You know, that kind of throws into question, like, what's your motive at that point? There's no way when you were typing that out that that's what you thought. And, and or if you did, <laughs> you know, then that kind of plays into like, what kind of mentality are you in? You know, if you're literally rewriting historical events in your mind to suit a certain narrative. But, you know, at the end, it really feels like they need to strip away um, any dignity of any type, you know, from this country. You know, that's why they want to label the American flag a hate symbol, you know, and, uh, that's why, it, you know, if you are seen wielding and like, having an American flag, no matter what political views you have, if Antifa or, you know, some members of BLM see you, they're going to beat you up. Like, it's not, you know, like, that's the thinking. Yeah, I, I heard they beat up a Bernie supporter holding a flag. Wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, but the funny thing is, is that that's one of the things I've been telling a lot of my conservative friends is that they don't recognize that Bernie is not their enemy. The The people that like um, when we went to the Green Party, a lot of Bernie supporters went there to check it out. They were very hostile to us because we weren't left enough for them, you know. And if it was just like um, communists who are peaceful people, like you, you know, like you know, for example, I would take you as an example. My friend Brian Moore, who is the Socialist Party can you know candidate in two thousand eight, you know, that's fine. But the kind of communists that seem to be on the rise are like Maoists. Stalinists, you know, and they have like this whole dialogue about how all the negative things said about these people is just propaganda and lies. You know, um, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, like there's a scene where 
a video basically of her praising this guy's book and saying, it's like Mao's little red book in reference to the book that was used during the cultural revolution that got a whole bunch of people killed. You mm-hmm. know, this, this is not good stuff, you know? And it yeah, I think, me, I think it, it, I think it comes down to whether, whether a person considers coercion to be a legitimate expression of their politics or not. And, um, I definitely do not never have, um, you know, I got into anarchist communism and, and later on I, f- I, um, heard about voluntarism and, uh, realized that, you know, my version of, of communism was entirely compatible with, with voluntarism of, of having no coercion and having all relationships be a hundred percent voluntary and, you know, based on consent. Um, and, uh, and even um, I was watching the Tim Pool show the other day, and and he had uh, Dave Smith on there from uh, the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, and they spent a long time. They even uh, mentioned Twin Oaks, but not by name. But I could tell they were talking about Twin Oaks, and um, and about how there has even as libertarians, they are totally cool with communism as long as it's strictly voluntary and only only the people who want to participate in it do. And if, for me, that's that's why I sought out Twin Oaks. That that was the that was the entire impetus. I wanted to see whether 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 this kind of uh, relationship could really work on um, you know out of people who who actively wanted to do it and um, and uh, were uh, were choosing that lifestyle of their own volition. Well, right. I also think that it doesn't work if it's coercive. Like you can get short term success. That's one of the things that Fresco pointed out. He's like, he's not just against force because it's immoral. It's because at the end of the day, it doesn't work. Like you're kind of setting yourself up for failure at that point. You know, um, but the problem is, is that um, Antifa ideology in particular has really been invaded with this concept that, you know, that they should just force you to go along with what they want. And if you don't like it, then they're going to beat you up. And then the whole time they've managed to, wrap their heads around a concept to suggest that their actions are self-defense, that they're doing this to prevent fascism. You know, yet they keep showing up in all these situations that just don't make any sense. Like they're like what was going on at the Wii spa had nothing to do with fascism. And they were even calling people fascists and racists as they're talking to people who are only there solely because of the issue of the possibility that a trans pre-op trans person may have exposed their genitalia to a child. You know, um, what does that have to do with fascism? You know, and they also, ironically, and I would say the the right is doing a correct point on this, is to say that, okay, so if you guys are anti-government, why the hell are you showing up at anti-mask protests, you know, where people are there just to say the government shouldn't be able to force people to put on masks? You know, at that point, you're going to show up and beat up people that are anti-government, you know, rather than maybe open a dialogue with them to say, see, this is why we don't like government, you know. You should consider, you know, what we're doing, you know, but, you know, first of all, um, I I would say that was one of the things I took away from kind of watching some of the videos that you suggested and also rewatching, you know, the Russia Today videos. And then in my conversations with people now about what left libertarianism is and what libertarian socialism is supposed to be, you know, and, you know, that it's voluntary. And I think that, um, you know, people think it can't work. But what it seems to me is that really what we're talking about here is it's a family farm. You know, the family farm used to be a thing, you know, and it was the same scenario. You're expected to pull your weight as much as possible for the sake of the family. 
And if you're in one of these intentional communities, you're just creating a family of like-minded people because the way we are in society now, in many cases, it's probably not going to be your biological family. I know, for example, I don't talk to any of mine other than my kids, you know, my roommate, great friend, you know, we essentially, you know, we pull our resources like, you know, um, you know, I put up the money to buy the car. He pays the insurance and helps me with the repairs. You know, like that's an example of what I mean, you know, and those kinds of things can be done voluntarily. And I think especially as we move into the situation with the economy to where automation is becoming really powerful and outsourcing is happening as much as they can get away with it, you know, that there's going to be a point when that's going to get so out of control that our previous model of operating, which was find a way to be use more useful to someone than their money so that they will pay you, you know, is not going to be viable. We're, we're going to get to a point where that just, just doesn't work anymore. And if that means that a group, say, of poor to middle class people decide to pull resources and work together in a cooperative, what's wrong with that? You know, that's not rounding people up and shooting them and putting them in gulags, you know, um, and you know, that seems to be the positive that I would take out of this, you know, and with other intentional communities as well. It's just that you have to be aware of the fact that if you're going to recreate a family, a voluntary exchange, you know, where we're all working together towards mutual benefit, then you can't be clashing with each other all the time. Like, you know, your, your personalities need to be compatible. And if there are things like, say, well, now we're going to round up everybody and figure out who is the most oppressed in this group. And the ones who are the least oppressed, we're going to oppress them because that creates, you know, equality. If we, you know, if we oppress them, you know, um, th these things are actually antithetical to making something like that exist. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, once, once you start using coercion, then, um, then there, it's no holds barred. And soon, soon you become, become the demon you thought you were fighting. For sure. And, you know, that's why I think um, at the end of the day, I think that there's a lot that people can learn from it. And, you know, we, we discussed some of the negatives of it. But I, you know, I guess, um, you know, was there any other elements, you know, about Twin Oaks that you think you'd want to share that maybe people are not aware of that you feel like or things that needed to be worked on? Um, well, there's a lot of good things about the lifestyle of um, the um uh, you know the the aspect of college that I really liked was was living in a dormitory and going to eat in a cafeteria, and I got to pres um, keep that that same aspect uh, at Twin Oaks. You know, everybody gets their own private bedroom, but that's that's all they get is a bedroom, and um, and then you um, you know you live with a bunch of um, other other people in a in a large house with you know ten or twenty bedrooms, and um, and then uh, everyone goes and eats in a big cafeteria and uh, you get your little tray and you, you know, put your food on it and you go sit down and with uh, usually a different group of people every day. Or some people have private tables and they eat with the same group of friends every day. But the um, uh, but it's a real um, uh, that kind of uh, uh, atmosphere of um, and then you're always having uh, new people coming in to visit. And so. Um, so it doesn't, um, doesn't get so stagnant. And, um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, there's this, um, spirit of, uh, volunteering of, you know, people are choosing the kinds of work they want to do. It's not chosen for them. 
Um, so as long as as long as you choose some kind of work that needs to be done, you're free to choose any kind of work. And and sometimes there's limits, like um, uh, you know, there's only um, a limited number of people who are needed in the sewage treatment plant, for instance. Whereas uh, when I was there, that you could basically make make an infinite amount of hammocks, and there there was no shortage of that because that at that time that was the mainstay of the community's income was making hammocks, and um, and and you can um, um, and occasionally there would be uh, shortages of labor in some particular area. Like they would say, "Oh, you know, we had this giant crop of strawberries come in from the garden, and uh, and we're short-staffed. We don't have enough people to process this into strawberry jam. And so, uh, please please volunteer and do the food processing. And you know, you get a whole bunch of volunteers, and that almost always works." And so I, I came away from the Walden Two experiment of, of believing, yes, it really does work. It's it's a system that really does work. And uh, I you know, I was listening today to uh, James Lindsay, um, and he did a podcast about how um, communism doesn't. I forget how he said it's communism doesn't know doesn't have the solution of how things are going to work, and that um, he's talking about Marxists and how uh, their version of the revolution is. Um, well, if you just uh, take away all the opposition and all the, um, you know, anyone who would stand in the way, uh, the uh, uh, reactionaries, uh, once you get all that out of the way and you seize the means of production, then you have instant utopia and everything works out great. And so wh- when they actually do get the power, they don't know how to run anything because they actually don't have a plan. Um, and I was contrasting that with Twin Oaks. Twin Oaks yeah, has a well-established plan that has worked for decades, and uh, it doesn't necessarily make everyone blissfully happy all the time. But it is sustainable enough to keep going decade after decade. Well, yeah, it's been going on for a long time. That's actually something I, I discovered when I was watching the Russia Today video today. Was just that, um, man, this has been going on for a long time, and then supposedly these things always break up, and it doesn't take long, is what they usually say. Um, and I'd say that the component to the ones that do break up is usually just personality clashes that are allowed to get out of control. You know, but you're talking about kind of, you know, and I guess that also kind of made a, a eureka moment in my head to think about the fact that I used to talk about this was that the family unit's destruction actually, at least in this situation, it actually serves capitalism because if you're utterly dependent only on yourself, that makes you a better consumer in general you know, um, but it also means that you are more beholden to your boss, you know, um, and, and sure, every, every, di- every divorced family used to have one home and now they have to have two homes and they shuttle the kids between the two. Well, right. And, you know, in addition to that, you know, multiple incomes, you know, that's why some people feel, for example, that the women's liberation movement was allowed to have certain success was that some of the, the wealthy elites came to the cost benefit analysis of, you know, where that would lead, which would mean, oh, that means we got, you know, two sets of incomes, two sets of credit reports, two sets of, you know, bank accounts, and, you know, just more participation in that system. But also, I mean, and and there's nothing wrong with that. If people want to do that, you know, again, nobody's going to try to push anything on them. But I think that, you know, for example, one of the things that the British Empire did to conquer the Scottish and the Irish was to do everything they could to break up the clan system. And clans were enormous families, Families that would take up like geographical positions in the country, you know, like they were almost basically tribes, uh, you know, like by Native American standards, they were enormous. You know, and if you saw somebody wearing the same color kilt as you, then you treated them accordingly. 
you know, and then they would work together collectively to figure out what people needed. You know, if there was needs for childcare, if there was needs for food, if there was need, you know, and the other element to that is that, you know, say, for example, you burn when their village is down, they can go to the next village and expect that their clan is going to help them, you know, and so systems like this, you know, really made it difficult for authoritarian regimes to take control, you know, whereas now it seems like we're in the situation where, you know, um, for example, I remember one time the, uh, the water heater gave out of my house. And so it leaked into the floor and it destroyed the floor. Um, and I'm in the middle of a custody battle at this point, And it just so happens that this is my kid's room's floor, you know, and I'm like, oh, geez, what am I going to do? And I post about this on Facebook and my family members are like, well, this is why people get homeowners insurance. And, you know, like just giving me lectures that really would not help me at all. Meanwhile, my friends were like, we'll be there tomorrow. You know, and then they showed up with saws and wood and like it didn't like I contributed money to the some of the materials. But at the end of the day, that situation was solved because of my extended family, my clan, so to speak. You know, and I would imagine something like that goes on in Twin Oaks. It's the same situation, whereas in, you know, your floor is giving out in one of the buildings. Well, then let's go fix it. There isn't this issue of, well, this is why people get homeowners insurance. You know, that's it almost kind of seems like the family has devolved to the point that like the purpose for family and so many people's lives that I know is that these are people who are going to be in your social media feed that you have to put up with because of some kind of shared genetics, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter how destructive they are to your lives, you're just supposed to put up with them. And that's not what family was meant to be. Yeah. As a, as a support system, a family of choice could in some circumstances be uh, as powerful as, um, as a family in terms of mutual aid. For sure. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't mentioned already? Oh, I could go in any number of directions if you want to keep going, but I've uh, had it. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, what are you, what are you curious about? Well, I guess, um, I guess it comes to this is that, you know, so we discovered each other because I was on a podcast um, with somebody else who knew you, you know, and they had done a podcast just kind of collecting, you know, uh, leftists who are also kind of of the opinion that what's going on on the left is wrong. Um, you know, and it, it, it seems to me that going forward that we need to reach out to other people that are having conversations like you and I are having about what's going wrong. Um, and that it's important to the future of the left as a whole. And that's going to mean some allegiances. That's going to mean, you know, for example, I even know some anarcho-communists, for example, who don't like what Antifa is doing, even though Antifa is understood to be a primarily anarcho-communist organization or whatever we want to call it today. Um, you know, but they're scared to say anything. You know, like you just said, like, you know, about the people in the in the community that were concerned about, you know, um, speaking up about something because they don't want to get, you know, shunned for it. Um, you know, but we also need to reach out and that, but that's going to mean that we're also going to have to reach out to some, make some allegiances with people we don't agree with about everything. You know, what do we do to get the rational conversation back? You know, that was um, one of them. Go ahead. You know, the, the first thing I would suggest is stop saying the words left and right. Um, Cause at this point I'd be, re- I'm definitely not right wing, but I'd, I'd be really reluctant to call myself left. I mean, sure. I've got, the same leftoid sympathies that I started out with, but um, the the way the left has 
has played out um, recently and also historically. Um, not sure I want to be associated with that. Um, and especially with the, the, the changing definitions of what these words mean, they're so fluid and flexible. Um, you know, the, the left, for instance, you know, a major issue is that the left, uh, when I was coming up, used to be uh, very in favor of free speech. And now they're very against free speech. Like, which one is the real left? Um, you know, who's to say? It's, it's a matter of opinion. So I, I think... Um, I think this left-right divide keeps us in little boxes and keeps us fighting each other. And I think it's far more unproductive than it is helpful at this point. No, and I agree with that. And that's actually kind of at the core. I mean, I tell people I'm left-leaning, but that I'm an independent. And, you know, I did a whole video that was specifically about why the uh, founding fathers were highly opposed to political parties. Um, You know, and in fact, some of them left England because fights between political parties were leading to riots in the streets. Sound familiar? You know, um, you know, and they're regardless. Yes. The founding fathers were slave owners and were flawed. You know, there's no question about that. I'm not like, you know, simping for them. And anybody who's listened to some of my videos, particularly about how direct democracy was taken out of the constitutional efforts um, knows that already. But, you know, I agree with you on that. And I think it's also kind of, I've been saying the right-left paradigm is kind of unnatural. And the term I usually use is packaged politics. You're handed a package and people get like tribalistically conditioned to go along with everything in their package, even things that contradict each other. If like, you know, and the, the first example I usually give is that I am pro-gun rights. I people believe people should have the right to own guns for self-defense purposes, you know, um, as well as hunting but I'm also pro welfare. So where the hell do I go? You know, there really is no home for people who think like that. And ironically, that's also how Bernie was. He was pro gun rights. And I'd say he probably still is, you know, but he took a lot of crap back in 2016, you know, because the Democrats are playing the anti-gun thing pretty hard, you know, but there's no room for anybody in any of the major political parties who thinks that way. Um, you know, even the third parties, I'd say, tend to kind of more or less kind of devolve back down to similar lines when it comes to this with a few exceptions. You know, um, and I agree with you completely that the right left paradigm is a big problem. It, but I think that what it amounts to is, is that, that you, we could still use them as descriptors to some extent to describe certain aspects. But I agree with you also that they're amorphous. That's the other thing is like I've been trying to figure out how do we define what is left and what is not? Because it used to just kind of be an understanding of, well, we give a crap about other people. And we believe that people should collectively work together. That seems to be the essence of it. Whereas the right is, you know, we believe that freedom is our right to be able to pursue, you know, how we want to survive the way we want to survive, you know, through capitalist principles, you know, and don't, don't tread on us. You know, that seems to be their perspective. And sure. Have you heard Jonathan Haidt's breakdown of left and right? I've been told I need to read Jonathan Haidt, but go ahead and share it with me. Oh yeah, just in a nutshell, he says that there are I think five five different um human concerns that people va- values, I think he calls them. And one of them is caring and and the thing we care about is uh we don't we want to avoid harm and that that's something the left has. Um and then another one is uh fairness, we want to make sure that people are getting what they deserve and not being you know, ex- exploited or discriminated against. That's another left concern. And then there are these, um, then there's uh, freedom that tends to be a, or liberty that tends to be a libertarian 
concern. That's pr- usually the only thing libertarians care about is is freedom. And then there's these um, other ones that only right wingers care about, which is sanctity, um, you know, free, whether it be the church or the sanctity of the flag. And then there's uh, deference to authority. Um, that you know there are the rightful leaders and they need need to be respected and and you you better respect your parents just because you're they're your parents and for no other reason and um and yeah it was uh trying to remember if i got them all there was the, yeah the uh, the sanctity the authority and uh, I, there might have been a th- another one but um and so for some reason um, only people on the right have those values and people on the left generally don't, or, or if they have them, it's only to a small degree. And, um, and so that, that was eye opening to me. I was like, wow, there's these other humans and they have these strongly held values that I don't value. I wonder, does, does that make them wacky or does it, am, am I actually the one who's deficient in these things? Well, and I, I would add to that that um, if you, there's like fragments within that, like if you ask a libertarian, meaning a libertarian card carrying party member, they'll tell you there's no such thing as left libertarian. Like they'll say such things don't exist. Um, if you talk to an anarcho capitalist, they will say that there is no such thing as an anarcho communist. Like they feel that they have the complete uh, monopoly on this term and that it only means what they want it to mean. You know, I agree with what you said about libertarian, which is why I know that, you know, libertarian leftists can exist. It's a question of like, that's why, I mean, you have that, that political test that people are talking about, you know, and it has varying degrees of things, but you could get some pretty interesting results if you answer everything accurately. Um, I don't think it's a perfect test by any means. You know, some of the answers I'm like, actually, I don't think I would pick any of these multiple choices. Um, you know, but I agree with that. And um, I think that it's an unnatural way of, of being as people. And it's certainly not what was envisioned by the founding fathers um, when they were dividing, you know, devising the Constitution was that we would just become part of these ideological packages and then would fight each other over that. That was never intended. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, the, all that partisanship is like a, a computer virus on the system of the Constitution. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I remember you you mentioned Thomas Sowell earlier and he he put out three challenges to the le- to the left and I I think they're really useful to keep in mind. Uh one was um whenever he whenever some leftist proposes some proposal to him, he he runs him through these three questions and the first one is what's the evidence? And the second one is compared to what? And then the third one is at what cost? And usually, um, since the, uh, at least nowadays, the left is uh, running on just pure indoctrination. They they tend to not have answers to any of those questions. But I I think even people with genuine leftoid sympathies like myself, I think um, if we do our homework, we can answer. We can come up with real answers to all three of those questions. Uh, but but it requires a little bit of humility and, and, and doing the homework to, to come up with the answers of, of what is the evidence for our proposal and not just guilt tripping. That's not going to, that's not going to work in the long term. or censoring, and, you know, or shaming or canceling. <laughs> yeah. And, and when, when we make a comparison, um, 
we have to not do what the Marxists do, which is take existing society today and compare it to a dream world, which has never existed and probably never will. If we're going to, we have to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And so if, if we're, if we're invoking our dream world, then we have to compare it to the right wing dream world and see whose dream is better. But if we're talking about nuts and bolts things in the real world, then we have to come up with counterexamples that that have actually existed, and uh, and then that's one of the reasons I I wanted to join Twin Oaks and experience it for myself. What's it really like, um, not just as a notion, but as as a daily lived experience, and um, and uh, so that was the compared to what, and then at what cost, and to understand that everything involves trade offs, and that if we if we spend money on something, we're not spending it on something else. If we're devoting time and attention to one cause, then what are all the other causes we're we're ignoring in the process? And I, I think we can we can put in the homework and and answer all those questions, but it's going to be a, a a very big departure from how how the left operates today. And I think that um, this kind of plays back to what you were saying about right versus left and how that's damaging. I can't recall how many times I've been told, well, you're repeating right-wing talking points. I'm like, okay, are they correct or are they incorrect? That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear who said it, and therefore that's the category you're going to put that information in. You know, And one of the things that you know, when I had the um, Corey Brooks on, who's a, a pastor who works in the communities in Chicago, and I agreed on was that to solve a lot of these poverty issues, it's going to take aspects of ideas that have been labeled right and ideas that have been labeled left in order to come to the proper conclusions. And some of it has to do with the fact, for example, that when Ben Shapiro says that there is a cultural aspect to what's going on there and that there's a personal responsibility aspect that is that is part of what will be necessary to fix it, he's not wrong. The part that he's wrong about is that that alone alone would do it, and I don't feel that it would. But I also don't think that, say, reparations or just throwing money at the problem will somehow fix it either. It's going to take some of both. And I agree with what you said also about the left, and it comes back to that that Jonathan Pye talk of President Trump, how and why, he pointed out the left has lost the art of debate. And everything that you just described, especially when it comes to a little humility, you know, it would be fantastic if um, we did that, you know, because of the fact that um, we don't even bother anymore to exchange with people. Like, if you're not going along with everything I'm saying, then I'm just going to block you. Or... If you are not going along with what I'm saying and you are publicly saying it at a university, then I'm going to try to get you canceled from being able to be allowed to share those ideas. We don't have exchanges anymore. And unfortunately, yeah, this discourse ahead. has been replaced by th- threats like that, threats and guilt trips. And, you know, um, th- those have worked for a long time. But what we're doing is we're. It's like overuse of antibiotics. We, um, you know, if you use lots of antibiotics like they're doing in, in China right now, it doesn't uh, make all the germs go away. It just breeds antibiotic resistant bacteria. And so, um, you know, what we're, what we're doing is, um, you know, all, the only people who are going to be able to survive are people who are impervious to, to uh, guilt tripping and, who are unafraid of threats. And so it's, uh, it's going to create a, uh, 
um, a society of, of Viking warriors or something like that. Um, <laughs> which, which I think that I think they believe on the surface will work for them, but that I don't think that they've really thought it through. Like I was on an anarcho-communist forum recently where there were a lot of Antifa present and the discussion of abolish the police came up and I, they, they said, well, the, the conversation started with, well, what do we do with people who don't feel that defund the police is working? You know, and one of the militant Antifa pipes up and says, you know, well, we don't replace, well, we, we don't uh, you know, defund anything. We just fully abolish it, you know, and then, you know, we as a collective community can just get together and we can solve these problems. And so I started pressing her with some very poignant questions. One of them was, what are you going to do when, say, the Mexican drug cartel shows up to fill the void? And that's a very real problem because that's already what happens in Mexico. Um, like they, for example, captured a major leader of the cartels, uh, meaning the government did. And so the cartel launched an armed assault on Mexico and it led to the president of Mexico having to order them to let the guy go because of the force that was gathered on the part of the cartel. They could literally just tell the Mexican government, well, I guess we're going to have to let him go. It's just not worth the cost. Now, if you can take a moment and imagine what it would be like if Joe Biden or even Trump before him had to get on, you know, the air and say, we're going to let this major, you know, criminal go because we can't, you know, we can't keep him because they're, you know, there's killing too many of us. I think that too many of these people don't really have a grasp of just how dangerous the problem is, you know, and then when they say what, what she basically said is that we, you know, we will we'll defend ourselves. You know, do you think us Antifa militants are just going to step down? You know, and I'm like, no, but I don't think that if you have this like completely non-authoritative organized effort to defend yourselves, that any kind of like force that does have organization and hierarchy is going to smash the hell out of you, you know, and it's if you by having that conversation. And I, the funny thing is, I got to a point where I said, did you read what happened to the anarcho-communists in Spain? The fact that they were destroyed by the fascists and the authoritarian communists because Hitler and Stalin worked together to destroy them. And that the reason that they couldn't defend themselves was exactly because they were trying to do what you're talking about, which is this idea of no authority ever, 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 no hierarchy. And we're just going to collectively get together and defend ourselves. It just doesn't work. So the answer to that was, you know, she immediately started saying admins, we got one, you know, dog whistling and liberal libtard stuff. And so they so they banned me. They didn't answer any of my questions. They just banned me. Uh, yeah. The thing with right-wing talking points is since the left doesn't know how to construct arguments anymore and the right is still doing it, that by default, the right wing has the best talking points currently, you know, as, at least in terms of the most logically persuasive because they're the only ones who've developed good talking points. Well, right. And they're practicing to do that. Whereas now we're, we're practicing censorship and they get more and more comfortable with it all the time. And I, I remember pointing out, you know, Derek Jensen agreed with me about this, that, for example, the left would have never survived Edgar Hoover and the communist scare if we didn't have free speech, you know, p period. You know, there wouldn't be these movements that exist right now if it wasn't for free speech. You know, and one of the first things that the actual fascists do is get rid of free speech. You know, so the the way that Antifa, like, kind of, like, figures out ways to do mental gymnastics to justify censorship. As long as it's their censorship, it's okay. They don't realize that this is how it always starts, you know? Um, and if you can't think things through and more importantly, you're encouraging people not to, well, then what happens when you put those people in positions of say managing something 
even in a collective, you know, if you've never had any kind of critical thinking practice, and if you can't defend the way you think, then then where, then what are you doing? You're at that point, you're completely just following dogma. There's no structure to what you're saying, you know, and that's why it fails. If you get personalities that are like that and you put them in an intentional community, they're going to fail. You know, it, it's you're robbing yourself of your ability to do those things and actually succeed in doing them. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, um, one, it reminds me of one experience I had is um, as an ardent feminist, I, um, I started checking out uh, critiques of feminism and, um, and I got deeper and deeper into it until I realized, my God, the, the people critiquing feminism have better arguments than the feminists do. And, um, and you know, t- a little time went by and I realized, my God, I guess I've got no choice. I have you know, even arguing on the same terms as the feminists do mm-hmm. using feminist values. The, uh, the men's rights activists uh, have, have the hands down the superior arguments. And I guess I've got to uh, change my ways and um, revise my view of the world. Um, which was awkward, um, but I got through it. And, um, and so I tried to, um, say, Hey, Hey, friends of mine, family of mine, look at, look at what I've discovered. I've, uh, figured this, uh, this, uh, uh, strange thing out that, um, that few people know about. And I discovered almost nobody wants to hear about it because how do they respond? They say, you're not allowed to say that you can't think that, um, or how dare you, um, as Greta Thunberg says, um, and so well, reading this, from her script, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's the state of the world today. Well, no, and it's funny. Just a quick, brief, like, dirty pleasure on that. It's just that she, she would, if you had only just listened to her say, "How dare you?" You would think it was very compelling. But then you watch her doing it, and she's looking down at her cue card over and over and over again, <laughs> and that gives it a whole different feel. You know, when it comes to feminism, it's it, the funny thing is, is that I, I constantly end up in a scenario where because like my daughter is a wrestler and actually a very good wrestler. She was a national champion. So I've been in, in the thick of the issue of fighting for girls rights in sports, you know, and th- that kind of brings up the, the trans element to all of this was that I researched it because I wanted to make my decision based on what the science actually said. I'm not wasn't right or left about it, but man, do you ever get labeled right if you don't follow along with that stuff? And the studies just did not back up what they were saying. And it, it proves up, I mean, it's a more important point about bringing this up is just to say that, you know, there's some of these things I call strange bedfellows. Like, for example, you can be a feminist, but then, you know, be really concerned that say, uh, this. here's a perfect example. There was a guy who got fired from Apple because some feminists working for Apple found something he said in a book years earlier that just said something about the nature of dating women in California. And so they got him fired. Meanwhile, Dr. Dre, the guy who wrote most of the lyrics for NWA, which gangster rap is by far the most misogynist version of music I've ever listened to, works there all the time and nobody even batted an eyelash. And it's probably because he's black. But the the point is, is that how do those things, you can't put those things together. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, you guys are satisfied that you got rid of this poor male who just said that, you know, it made a comment about women and dating in like some part of California, you know, but, but Dr. Dre is okay. <laughs> you know, who made his mm-hmm. entire career on calling women bitches and hoes. 
you know, I mean, did you encounter any of that kind of stuff when you were reevaluating your thoughts about feminism? Um, well, what I discovered is that um, if, if feminism as we know it today is just riddled with hypocrisy and um, not just a little bit, but it's it's built on a foundation of, of rank hypocrisy. Um, and it's it's funny, if you trace it back to its origins, like the, the word feminism was invented by Charles Fourier. And his uh, how he defined it was um, judging a society based on how well they treat their women. And so I think what was happening there was that um, I think men in general have have a built-in instinct to provide and protect for women. And so as, as, a, as a philosopher, Fourier, you know, he has this inner urge to provide and protect for women. So he comes up with this philosophy feminism that says, ah, the best, the best society uh, does the best providing and protecting for women. And then it becomes a women's movement that says, aha, the, um, uh, the, you know, the patriarchy hasn't done enough to take care of women well enough. And so it was always playing on, on men's desire to take care of women better than they have before. And so it, it, um, it was uh, always dependent on men's care for women while simultaneously saying, saying I'm outraged because our society doesn't care about women while being dependent on that very care in order to proceed forward. And so we have this interesting situation where how I would describe it is, is it's, it's people who are imagining they're running this race and making a lot of progress but they really haven't even left the starting gate. It's all imagination. It's um, there. No progress has happened. And that we're still that feminism is, is another embodiment of the patriarchy itself. And that's, and that's interesting, especially when you try to debate with them, like when men rights act, men's rights activists make legitimate points, for example, about what goes on in the family court system. And I endured that myself. Um, you know, but then feminists have a way to twist that around to make that still somehow an aspect of the patriarchy. Like, so when I went into the court system and anything that my ex-wife did was completely brushed over, no matter how terrible it was, um, without getting into really strong details, to put it bluntly, you know, just a couple of highlights would be that my daughter's arm was mysteriously broken at one point while in my ex-wife's care. With no explanation. Um, and you bring this up in court and what they want to hear about is how behind on child support you are, which my lawyer explained to me that they're doing that because they're hoping they can just get you out of there, you know? Um, and I, and then have to explain to the court, well, actually she's the one who is over $10,000 behind on child support. Then suddenly they don't want to talk about child support anymore. Now, all of these things, in addition to many other horrific things I encountered, I am being told is actually an aspect of the patriarchy that somehow this is men, you know, pushing women around. And, you know, when you go there, almost the entire staff of most family courts is women, um, you know, and it's pretty clear that they're kind of working together to that end, you know. And, and so you look at that and you go, no, this isn't the patriarchy at all. You know, I think it almost seems like sometimes it feels like uh, some feminists now, they want the whole enchilada. They want to be treated like, you know, in all of the different ways that, say, the patriarchal system of things like alimony and child support 
you know, and all that. They want all of those benefits. They want all of the, um, the chivalry benefits. They want all that stuff. But then they also want all of these new things. They don't, they're not giving anything up, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah, that's so the, equality was never the real goal. You can tell by, by the net behavior that's going up. Well, right. And, and the same thing I would say, you know, goes on in the racial situations. It goes on in the, you know, in any kinds of any of these isms. And that's, it comes back to what Fresco said, that this is what happens. You start off with the best of intentions. You think you're just trying to help people. And then before long, you don't realize it until it's too late. You've become what you sought out to oppose. So um, this has been a great talk. You know, thank you for sitting on here with me. And I almost feel like talking about the feminism thing could be a whole other show sometime. Um, You know, was there anything else that popped into your head that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, just a closing thought, which is that nobody wants to be a victim. That would be a horrible thing to, to be a victim. However, if you can not be a victim while simultaneously publicly posing as a victim, then you suddenly get all the benefits of being a victim without without the the horrors of actually being a victim and i think i think that's a major dynamic of happening in our world today that people turning their ostensible victimhood which isn't real victimhood into cash and prizes power um influence fame and um and leaving actual victims in the dust and neglected and um however there's a price to be paid for that it's um which is that you can never have if, if you spend all your time posing as a victim talking about how your ancestors were victims and that makes you a victim today you can never have full self-respect doing that you can never feel like you're really standing on your own two feet if you're doing that and it's it's going to it's going to catch up and have ugly consequences you know, and that kind of brings me to something I'm, I'm going to tell my audience about is I'm working on a video right now where I'm putting together various hoaxes that were situations where people basically sought to capitalize on this very thing, which is that being a victim gets you certain amounts of social credit um, within certain circles. And, you know, there was an incident a while ago, for example, where a young black girl set a fire in her dormitory and tried to frame it as if it was a racial attack on her. And unfortunately for her, there were video cameras on her the whole time that she wasn't aware of. And it turns out that in her past, she had had another incident that had made her all kinds of popular and everybody wanted to hear what she had to say. And it was a racial incident. So she had, and you know, so she kind of confessed at one point, she's like, well, nobody was listening to me about race issues anymore. So I felt I needed to do this again. You know, it's like, um, you know, there was another incident, for example, where this girl was trying to start a Black Lives Matter chapter on her campus and she just wasn't getting very much interest because there just wasn't very much racism in that campus. So she literally created a false Twitter account to threaten herself and then shared that with everybody. And it became a major incident. And then all of a sudden, all these people are coming out to support her and want to hear what she has to say and help her through her terrible time. You know, it went so far as to say, you know, we need to get the president of the, of the campus fired because he's clearly not doing enough. And the whole thing was fiction. And so you have to yeah, ask we're living in ju- We're living in Jussie Smollett's world. Right, exactly. That's the, the most public example that people know of. And, you know, and it worked for him until it didn't. And if he hadn't gotten caught, it would have continued to work for him. So you ask yourself, that's another thing about calling people racist. If we really lived in a racist society, why would that have the power that it does? If we were lived in a sexist society, why would that have the power that it does? 
if you tell yeah. a member of the KKK that they're racist, they go, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. I, <laughs> and, and why did why did Rachel Dolezal and Sean King prepare to pretend to be black? It's in order to reap the benefits, of course. Right. And Sean King's extremely wealthy now. Like, <laughs> I don't know what happened to Rachel, but I know he is. He's making a lot of money. Um, you know, and that's a topic for another show for sure. I'm working on a video about that as well. But, you know, but I agree. It is, if there would not be any reason to go out of your way to stack up your oppressed classes if there wasn't some benefit out of it. So thanks again for coming on. I hope that, you know, I can have you on again sometime. I think that our conversational viewpoints definitely played off of each other really well. Um, you know, and thank you everybody for tuning in. And I want to say, Nexus, um, hang on briefly after I'm done recording. I always have just a brief after talk with people. Um, and thank you everybody for tuning in. If this is your first time checking out V radio, please be sure to check out my archives either on my YouTube channel or my podcast. Um, I do put some stuff on my YouTube channel that does not go on my podcast for obvious reasons. Um, because if you don't have the video element, sometimes something doesn't translate over to being a good podcast. You can check that out at V dash or V hyphen or V minus basically just looking for that. Not everybody knows what a hyphen is, um, but minus so v minus radio dot us, and there you can find various ways to um, listen to my content and to interact with me, whether it's on Discord, Telegram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in.